Welcome to The Spawn Chunks, episode number 240 for Monday, April 10th, 2023. My name is Joel Duggan, and joining me as always is my friend Johnny, but the internet may know him better as Pixel Riffs. Hello, sir. Hello! Uh, we've been having a good chat about collectible card games and digital versions of collectible card games. I've been playing a lot of Marvel Snap. We dipped into Magic the Gathering and Hearthstone a little bit as well. If that sounds like your jam, you might be interested in listening to The Render Distance. That's the extended version of the podcast we do every week that our patrons get to listen to. If you sign up at patreon.com slash thespawnchunks for as little as the price of a cup of coffee, you can get a month's worth of The Render Distance, and it's always a good time both pre- and post-show discussions. Usually the post-show tends to skew a little bit what we've covered in the episode, but a little bit extra. Our patrons also get access to some other side content that we do. Uh, we had a quarterly hangout for the first quarter of 2023, recorded this last Saturday. That is now in patron RSS feeds. For anybody who wants to know a bit more about the behind-the-scenes facts and figures of the podcast, download numbers, YouTube statistics, all that kind of stuff, that's all covered in the quarterly hangout. The monthly Minecraft hangout that we have where we talk to our patrons about what they've been building in Minecraft lately is going to take place on Saturday, April 22nd. Normally it's the last Saturday of the month, but since it's Joel's birthday on the 29th, we decided to do it a week earlier. So prepare your screenshots for that date, put it in your diaries now. That's April 22nd for the monthly patron hangout. So what have you been up to in Minecraft this week, my friend? I have not had a huge amount of time to play survival Minecraft. I had an absolute shocker of a stream on Tuesday, actually, where my internet basically half went down in the middle of it, so my upload speed was fine, I was still streaming, and if I went to my Twitch I could see that I was still live, but suddenly my like download speed wasn't working. I got kicked from the server when I was playing on Empires, I had just gotten back from the uh, a trip to the end where I had to go and get some more elytra because I died in lava in the nether and had potentially lost a bunch of my stuff. Turns out a lot of my stuff was actually fine and I just needed to get back there, but it was a netherite mine quite a distance away, so it was going to be kind of a difficult thing to get back. Uh, so in the end, I just decided to continue playing and hope that my Twitch chat could refresh itself. I ended up playing Minecraft Bingo for a round, and right before the round ended, where I was going to beat my personal best time in Minecraft Bingo, the whole stream went down and I was disconnected, and so nobody saw me complete the run and get a, a Minecraft Bingo personal best. So it was it was a <laughs> no. rough start to the week, uh, to say the least. But then, uh, yeah, on Thursday, I was able to do a, another stream after the embargo lifted on the capture event that I had been to for Minecraft Legends back in March. So I was able to go through a bunch of the footage, the stuff that I'd already shared on my YouTube channel, but since I was streaming the same day, I figured we'll go through this, we'll have a Telestrator angle to this. So I, I knocked together a Telestrator in what I think is a fairly, like lo-fi but quite fun way where I basically had a Photoshop canvas with a green background just like a chroma key green and then I green screened it out of my stream setup and then drew on it with like a red paintbrush so I could kind of do a play-by-play -play sports analysis angle on some of the stuff that we'd done at this this PvP match that we played at the capture event so uh, had a lot of fun with that. But then I actually managed to get back into Survival Minecraft and do a bit more work on my base on Empires. So I'm now working on some structures internally to the castle that I'm building. And some of these are going to be more ruined, but some of them are going to have survived a little longer, maybe magically preserved, maybe just the materials that we used were better. And I've started on what I'm calling the Sanctum, uh, which is more of like a shrine inside of the castle grounds that's surrounded by moss. There's a bridge going out to it, but it is this lone tower. 
and I've decided to work in some moss and stuff to make it look a bit overgrown, but there's calcite and diorite up the walls. There's going to have a dome over the top of it eventually, and it's going to be like one of those side areas that you walk into in a game like Dark Souls or Elden Ring where there's this sort of peaceful, harmonious place and then maybe a boss drops down from the ceiling and smashes you with a hammer or something. Um, can't guarantee that's going to happen in Minecraft, but uh, I think it's it's working out quite well so far. I'm quite enjoying the design process. I love the way that this is looking. The um, the destroyed kind of tower, I think that's where the, the nether portal is, it looks yeah, like. The, yeah, my nether portal's in there, yeah. Yeah, it's it's cool because it looks like it's it's got both fashion and function. Uh, it it has this really great kind of like charred, you know, exploded section of the tower, maybe hit by a fireball or you know a, a catapult strike or something like that. But it also looks very convenient to fly down in, mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah. with your elytra, you know, so that you don't have to like jump up or climb up a ladder or carefully land in a four by four block area. Like it it, it has like a an aircraft hangar kind of convenience but also looks really cool from a fantasy standpoint too yeah and and that's sort of in the foreground of where this tower is so you can imagine that maybe people were trying to hit the tower uh, in the background the kind of sanctum area and then they've hit the tower in front instead and they're mm. trying to besiege the place but that's all stuff i picked up from stormvale castle and elden ring which has clearly been attacked by dragons or something at some stage where it has all of these burned out and crumbling bits of of the exterior wall so yeah i'm trying to work in elements like that and that decayed look is going to arrive to the rest of the castle as i go and maybe i'll add a couple of bits after the fact for a bit of set dressing but it's uh slow progress as anything of this scale is going to be but i'm pretty happy with what i was able to just throw together on stream man i mean speaking of scale like i love the scale of this like it's going to look so interesting and and cool once you've got more towers and you can sort of see that that layered effect that you see with like external walls and internal walls and mm -hmm. and and towers and, and whatnot and i'll be interested to see also like where the courtyards are like i think you mentioned like a market before like that kind of stuff is going to be really interesting because unlike a lot of kind of minecraft castles that i've seen it, this is not square <laughs> Yeah, like, I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I it's so big I can't see the shape of it because the render distance doesn't really show the back of it, and mm -hmm. and I like I like the the mystery there, and I, I'm curious to see how it's all going to come together. It's going to feel very organic, I think, which is great. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really what I'm aiming for at this point. Like the mm. castles that I built in the past have had some a lot of open spaces in between, but have always just felt like an interconnected, like loosely connected series of buildings, and this is trying to just take what i've learned from any of those projects in the past and take it all into this project the area around this sanctum tower is also going to be an open space and i've decided i want to have like a an apiary down there for bees and um it, it turns out that gemini tay has basically just assumed the crown after it was with scott smajer for a while and uh her rule uh, for, for the other empires is that they have to start taking care of some bees and on stream i was just musing oh i should probably have some bees in here i think bees would be be pretty good for this courtyard area just up on little scaffolding stilts you know and people people in my chat were like actually you might be in luck there <laughs> because it turns out that yeah ev everyone has to adopt some bees for now i would be so tempted to make a couple of stone letter bees and just mm, mm -hmm. say, <laughs> put a fence around them. I'm I'm keeping bees. Yeah, <laughs> Where are they? Yes. They're over there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I expect a few people will come up with more creative solutions to that if they don't want the mobs around themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So how's uh, West Hill going? How's the Citadel this week? So I know I played Minecraft all week. I don't feel like I have a lot to show for it. 
I was working on the details around the, the curtain wall on the south side uh, and then moved into the south approach. And so um, it was a pretty chill week and I enjoyed what I was doing, but it's one of those weeks where you walk away going like, I know I was placing blocks all week long, but like, I really don't feel like I've, you know, constructed much. And with landscaping and I think uh, any kind of custom foliage, like it ends up being a lot like what I remember uh, early stages of like a drawing or a painting, which is like you're, you're, especially if you're working digitally and you don't have to worry about um, adding stuff or taking stuff away or whatever. You're just at that point where you can just kind of undo, you know, and I used to have people come into my streams. It's like, I've seen you draw this line six times and erase it six times. What is wrong? And I'm the same way with Minecraft foliage. Like I'm just, I place a piece of grass or I place a bush and I back up and I go, nope. And then I move it a block to yeah. the left. And people are like, uh -huh. I don't understand what you're doing. And it's hard sometimes to articulate, but essentially what I found as I was trying to break it down is that there are certain, I guess, sections of the curtain wall and sections of the landscape that feel very bleak and I'm trying to fill them in, but they're outside the town. I don't want to put a building there, which would be easy, but then it makes no sense. You know, why would there be a building like right next to the curtain wall? So I'm, I'm left with doing like custom trees. I did a, a little bit of a test where I tried to force Minecraft to make some big oak trees and one of them turned out okay. It still needs some pruning. The other one was just not nice. And so I decided to um, move it and kind of shape it myself, which is the first time I've ever done, I think, a custom oak tree to completion. And I'm okay with it. I think I'll, I'll get better as time goes on. But um, I find spruce custom trees way easier to do than than oak. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you can use dark oak planks and they blend in better with spruce mm -hmm. logs. Where spruce planks to blend in with oak logs, it's it, you kind of have to wrap your head around it. We've talked about this before. Like you kind of have to say like, yes, it looks like a spruce stair in a tree, but if I'm far enough away, <laughs> it yeah. sort of looks like the trunk on an angle. So I was messing around with stuff like that. And the goal here is to make the curtain wall feel a little bit more interesting. So in other places, I realized that I had towers, whether it's a gate or a defensive tower or a bridge or something near water. I, I had sections of the, of the wall kind of like in smaller doses, whereas this big curtain wall that wraps around the church, it doesn't have any towers. And I spent an entire stream, which is where part of my week went, trying to add a tower along the river uh, on this section to kind of break it up and make it feel like it had something more to hold it up. And it just didn't work. It, it made the river feel too skinny. It didn't line up with the top of the wall because I didn't design it from the get go. Like I didn't design it as part of the wall when I built it, I'm trying to add it in later and it just wasn't driving with me. So I ended up taking the whole thing down and I opted for a more detailed mossier texture of the wall as it kind of goes down into the river. So I was using like tough and mossy cobble and cobblestone, whereas the rest of the wall is pretty much just andesite and stone. And that's kind of all it is. And then in other areas where I felt that the stone wall was, was still lacking, I added some buttresses to try and help it look like it's been held up in a way because there's no towers, but at least there's something else to kind of help the structure of it. And that worked out well because the church itself, the stone church has got several buttresses that help hold up the roof you know, in terms of its design. Mm -hmm. And so they work well there. And the rest of the time was just spent doing like this overgrowth combination of like azalea bushes and mangrove roots and moss and moss carpet and trying to like kind of build up this idea that there's been enough time gone by that it's not just grass outside the walls. It's like thickets and bushes and, and things like that. And um, fun stuff like hiding secret passages. Uh, we've got, there's a little door 
at the base of the this church stone wall um, that goes up into the graveyard behind the church. And you, you it's it's there, like it's it's visible, but you have to kind of look for it. And now I'm trying to like guide the player down a path where they might find it. And it's just a simple little thing to kind of like show people that you can kind of get in and out of of the the walls in different areas. And I've got a couple of those in different places. And they're just fun. They're just happy accidents. It's like, you know what? This feels like I'm so close to getting through this wall. Like I feel like I could probably dig like a little tunnel and see how it turns out. And sometimes it just, it's a happy accident and I just kind of lean into it. I love stuff like that though. The amount of stuff that you can do with environment design and that's like having a door in your outer wall like that is both convenient for the player from a practical perspective. It's also prompting people who see that to consider who's using this door to go in and out is that something people know about is that like you know a way for the lord of the town to sneak out the back way if you know the town is in trouble and like the peasants are revolting or whatever like there's there's so many different ways that that can go story-wise that leaves it open to the beholder's imagination and that's part of the fun too and i mean the joke in chat is it's like it's not so secret you've got x amount of people in chat that just saw you build it i was like well <laughs> it's been more of a lore thing um mm -hmm. not so much literal but yeah i i love putting in things like that where you can just kind of have an imagination as to how it might be used to smuggle goods or people or you know anything like that um i think that the hardest part of what i was doing was working with this south road approach um, i still don't know what i'm doing with this large piece of grass south of the church i just it's just a big old empty space it's one of the only things of, about west hill that i don't like is the way that it's ended up being laid out like i feel like i've got this weird kind of protrusion around the church uh and i just I'm, i didn't want to make the the town itself like 40 percent bigger and have the wall kind of encompass the entire river so i i opted to kind of snake it around and now i'm just left with this weird kind of awkward space so i i completed a good chunk of it where i find and you might be able to chime in on this because you do a lot of landscaping as well i find that when i've got a piece of landscape like a riverbank i didn't i need to do two things first i need to do this the, like the two ends so i had the curtain wall and then i designed a bush that kind of like cascades down and goes down into the river and then the other side, I had a bridge and a guardhouse. And what I did was I put a little fishing trail around the guardhouse, thinking that in this area of town, like anytime there's access to a river, people are going to try to walk down to like easily fish or whatever. And so that ended up taking, you know, three or four blocks of width out of this empty space to the right of the, um, the guardhouse. And I used that to help fill in the gap. But then I had this nice bookend of there's a bush up against the wall. There's a fishing trail over behind the guardhouse. Now all I have to do is just fill in the embankment. And it's it's a long process where like you look at the embankment and that's what you want to do. But then you realize you have two additional tasks, both of which take an hour, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, or if you're as picky and as slow as I am. Um, so then you're, you're basically spent like the entire stream doing this one small section of landscape. It looks fine. I'm ha quite happy with it. But I find that when you're landscaping in Minecraft, the one task you think you have is really three. Yeah. So do you find that you have to bookend things like before you work on something in the middle or do you work from the middle and kind of like decide what you're going to do in the ends later? I tend to bookend stuff as well. Mm. Yeah, I'm always like the, the the middle can sort itself out later <laughs> is, is usually my approach. When I was doing the cliff plateau kind of thing on on empires that I'm building this castle on top of, 
it was really like, let's get all of the detail around the outside done first. You know, let's get both sides of the cliff, let's get the trails that go alongside the cliff, and then all of the stuff in between just ended up being layers and layers of grass, because then I can build a castle on top of that and you're not going to see what material that's made out of anyway. So in that case it worked, but yeah, like, ha having having so many different approaches to terraforming, I can imagine it gets frustrating when you're like, oh, there's just this one bit that I need to take care of that ideas aren't suggesting themselves after inspiration struck in a couple of other places nearby. And I've found that I, I've picked up a couple of tips. Now, I don't know whether these are things that I've seen other places. Uh, I, I certainly don't remember looking up any tutorials, so I can't imagine I'm the only one that's ever come up with this. But the two things that I've found have really helped me have been covering an embankment with two tall grass and two tall ferns, like bone meal, the crap out of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, outside of the edges close to the water, don't leave anything as a single high grass uh, until you get back up to the top where the hill starts to, to even out. I find it a really effective way to soften up an area and also kind of like deter the player from walking that way because it's going to be in your face. Like it's going to be like, that looks like a creeper town waiting to happen. Like yeah, I'm not going yeah. there. And, and mm -hmm. I find that it forces the players to then look at the paths and look at where you want them to look. Um, at least that's how my brain works. And the other thing uh, that I find really helpful has been um, when I'm dealing with a lot of Minecraft landscape, even if it's been handcrafted to be smoother by me, you're dealing with a lot of dirt sides to grass blocks because I don't have Optifine anymore. And I find replacing the end of a line of blocks with like an azalea bush or an oak bush or whatever bush you're working with. Um, probably um, a mangrove or something else in a taiga biome that changes color with the biome um, really helps soften the hard edge. And so I've not replaced every grass block that has a dirt block side, but I've replaced a lot of the ends the, where you can see two faces of that dirt side mm -hmm. with a, 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 a leaf block and then maybe put in a moss behind it so it, you can't see the dirt through it and I find it really helps soften an area and make it just kind of feel like a peppering of overgrowth without having any real like I've built a custom bush or I've built a custom tree. It's just like this interesting peppering of things. And that's the thing that I think I need to work on most in terms of adding stuff to my repertoire in terms of landscaping is just having the ability to remove the Minecraft nothing that I don't like and add the Joel nothing that I do like. Yeah. And yeah, when I say nothing, I just mean like, you know, a wild plane, like just something that's natural, like a field of grass. But I find when, when Minecraft does it, I never really like it. So, um, cause there's always like a weird pocket of water or like, you know, some thing that's floating and you, you have to change a, a fair amount, but, um, so far so good. It's just, it's slow at this stage. Um, but I am coming down on, the final tasks uh, outside the the approaches to the city, and so we're we're getting real close, and it's exciting. I'm I'm I hesitate to say that I'll finish it this month, but that's what I'm trying to push towards. Is like trying to get it as close to finishing uh, as I can this month. Yeah, well, I'm crossing my fingers for you and hoping that some uh, some good things suggest themselves for those liminal spaces. They can be tricky to fill in, but I'm sure you'll find the time. Um, how about we move on to today's news? Sounds like an absolute plan. This week we have Minecraft Java Edition Snapshot 23W14A, changes in 23W14A, changes to the Skulk Shrieker, Skulk Sensor, and Calibrated Skulk Sensor. Replaceable blocks no longer block the connection between enchanting tables and bookshelves. In the Desert Temple, the new room has more of its roof collapsed, and one block of suspicious sand is always visible on the top layer. 
updated the Minecraft Java Edition logo, and the main menu background has a new panorama image for trails and tails. Skulk Squeaker changes. Waterlogging them will now silence their shriek sounds. Shriekers have been added to the Redstone Blocks tab in the Creative menu. Skulk Sensor changes. Default Redstone output has been modified to be more reliable for distance calculations. The Skulk Sensor now strongly powers the block they are placed on. These changes also apply to the calibrated Skulk Sensor. Calibrated Skulk Sensor changes. They now have an active cooldown of one second instead of two seconds. Detects vibrations up to 16 blocks away instead of eight. They now accept signals in the calibration input side more consistently with other redstone components. For example, signals can now be received through a block. Technical changes in 23W14A. Signs with click commands can now be interacted with even if signs are not waxed. Signs with non-text chat components can no longer be edited. Added new loot table functions called reference. Added support for quick play. Removed the server and port arguments as their functionality has been replaced by quick play. Quick play adds support for new command line arguments, which allow the game to be launched directly into a world when you click single player or multiplayer instead of selecting a world from a list. Bug fixes of note in 23W14A. Transparent blocks placed between bookshelves and enchanting tables negate bonus received from bookshelves. Can't plant cactus and sugarcane on suspicious sand. That's been fixed. There have been also a handful of fixes for sniffer behaviors, as well as numerous fixes related to textures and Z fighting. A full list of bug fixes, technical changes, etc., can be found in the Minecraft.net article linked in our show notes. That is more or less it for the news, but I just want to bring to everybody's attention, since it's going to be part of our main discussion as well, that Minecraft Legends is really close to release. It's only eight days away at the time of this recording. It launches for the public next Tuesday, April 18th. You can pre-order it now through the Minecraft launcher or on Minecraft.net if you go to the Minecraft Legends section there. And they've continued to post a few short videos on Minecraft's YouTube channel, so head over there if you want to get a, a quick preview of gameplay and a few cinematic sequences, but there's no news really aside from that. Uh, a small Bedrock beta came out this week as well, I think maybe even one or two, but a lot of those, like the Java snapshots, are just a series of bug fixes and occasional gameplay tweaks right now. So how do you feel about the uh, Skulk sensor changes? I'm really excited for them, to be honest. I think uh, calibrated Skulk sensors sounded really useful to begin with, but these changes make them way more useful. The fact that most of the time you want to waterlog a Skulk sensor to make sure that it doesn't have the vibration sound that it makes, but that was making it difficult to input a signal strength of a certain, you know, a signal of a certain strength into the, the input side because waterlogging it was going to wash away the redstone dust and so yeah you needed to be quite specific about how you did some of that and now if they can receive it through a block in the same way that a comparator can read a signal through a block or read how much cake is left on the other side of a wall then like if it works that way perfect and they've got a couple of other really nice quality of life changes in there as well uh the cooldown being faster and having extra range is really nice it would be a nightmare for regular skulk sensors if they could hear you from 16 blocks away and they're activating <laughs> constantly but them having a cooldown and extra range considering that the calibrated ones can be set up to only detect specific vibration frequencies is really good because that makes them a lot more viable for 
a whole variety of things. And I think a lot of people thought, especially after the Amethyst Resonance uh, got introduced a couple of snapshots ago, people were thinking, this really doesn't feel like quite a long enough range, but now you can do that along with the calibrated skulk sensors. It's going to make relaying that basically half as expensive in terms of components, and it can happen over a longer distance without you having to put in another relay station. I think that's that's good. That's a solid change. I still haven't had a chance to play around with them enough that I could really tell you this is the first thing I'm going to do with them, but I'm just excited that they exist and I expect I'll find uses for them as I continue to play. I Yeah, couldn't have said it better. I think all the change, changes are fantastic. And um, I think I've said it before in the show that I've not messed with Skulk sensors very much because of the West Hill project, but looking at them now with the addition of the extended range on calibrated Skulk sensors, that piques my interest. That all of a sudden becomes like, okay, there's a whole lot of creative things that you can do with mm -hmm. this now that you can place them 16 blocks apart. Uh, or 16 blocks from the source. Um, like if if instead of a chain, if you're just getting skulk sensors to like open up a secret door or do something cool, like light up a corridor, they don't have to be next to you. Like you could hide a skulk sensor in a modern city and essentially have like, you know, um, automatic doors in an airport or, you know, lights go on or a billboard or something like that. And you would never see it. You could have it waterlogged behind a wall and as long as the person is walking in the right area and maybe that's what the thing is listening for, like you can set up all kinds of really cool stuff. So I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing both what I can do with it and what the community is going to do with the calibrated skulk sensor now that it's got that that range added to it. I think it's an excellent, excellent change. I am less excited about the skulk shrieker changes because of the potential for waterlogged shriekers. <laughs> um if if you went down to a deep dark biome and spent some time pre-waterlogging naturally generated skulk shriekers, the next person to raid that ancient city would have a very different experience. <laughs> because if you think about it, not being able to hear the shriek, but then still getting the darkness effect and having like a strike against the warden spawning, that's going to be terrifying. <laughs> and I don't know if there's any situations in which they can occur naturally. Like I don't think the skulk block family tends to spawn underwater. Um, but the fact that they can be waterlogged by a player is going to lead to a lot of chaos, I would imagine. Like, you'd have to be extra careful about where you were sneaking at that point. I was surprised when I uh, first heard it, I thought it was going to negate the warden appearing. Like, if you waterlogged the skull Shrieker, then it would just be muted and then it wouldn't summon the warden. But the sound effect still happens in terms of like the, sorry, not the sound effect, the visual representation of the sound effect, the rings, the animation still happens. Uh, yeah. It would be cool if you could somehow do that where you could then have these skulk shriekers around your base with these kind of like a campfire decoration, but instead it's got these you know rings emanating from it, but without the hazard of summoning a, you know, yeah. a warden in the middle of nowhere, uh, yeah. which would be problematic. But I, I can understand from a gameplay perspective, they just don't want to, you know, because then all you have to do is bring a bucket of water to the, to the ancient city and you're fine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. But I, I expect people can still do some fun stuff with the particles, uh, given that I think they will still produce the shriek particles. They just won't have the darkness effect and everything after that. If you bring it with you, if you silk touch them and, and place them somewhere else, they still shriek. They just don't summon the warden at your, your oh, friend's right. base or whatever. I so, forget about that. Okay. Like, yeah. So so it's still it's still providing opportunities for creativity across the board, I think. It's just yes. yeah, the 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 naturally generated ones are probably the most dangerous. Um and yeah, the fact that they're they're in redstone blocks and stuff makes perfect sense. A lot of the other Skulk family are and they have that interaction with Skulk sensors that probably uh, you know, 
contributes to that as well. Um, yeah, Skulk Center's strongly powering blocks. Again, makes sense. It's it's on top of a block the whole time. You know, most of the time you're going to need stuff like that, and I can I can see that happening. I think I've tried using it that way in a couple of contraptions and been kind of miffed when it didn't work that way. So, yeah, totally makes more sense. Um, the main thing I think people are, were going to be discussing this week, though, is the change to the Java Edition logo. It now looks a lot closer to, if not identical to, the version of the Minecraft logo you see on Bedrock Edition everywhere, which is just Minecraft. It doesn't say Bedrock Edition on it uh, anywhere else, but the Java Edition text on that is slightly larger. The whole logo is slightly smoother. I'm interested in your take on this as somebody who's uh, done some art and design stuff in your career. I, I think it's a good change. I, I think that um, one of the things it does is make Minecraft feel more like a modern game. And yeah, unless yeah, that it was designed in 2000 and well before 2012, like it was designed in the, you know, late aughts. I think that by doing that, if you are bringing in other players that maybe don't play Minecraft or played Minecraft ages ago and haven't touched it in a long, long time, but they're avid gamers and they enjoy dungeons and maybe they like uh, they want to try the new Minecraft Legends game. If they go and try, well, let's, I haven't played Minecraft in ages. Let's go in and see what this is all about. And they land on that logo screen. They're going to be like, oh, wow, how retro is this? And I, and I think that by updating the logo, it's a clear branding consistency, you know, across the board, but it also says like, hey, this is an up-to-date game. It still has the blocky, uh, we'll say underpinning of when it first started, but it's changed a lot. And, and I think that a lot of the things that we see in Minecraft, like, for example, bees come to mind, um, skulk triggers and skulk sensors and all that kind of stuff. I feel like those things are have a much more modern feel than your average, like, cobblestone and oak, you know, builds that people are probably used to or think of if they have not been to Minecraft in a while. And so by updating the logo, you tie it together with people's other experience with Mojang properties. And I think that's a solid change. Um, and it doesn't really affect the rest of it because the rest of the ui on the landing screen is all pixelated you, you're you're looking at a panorama of what the game is going to look like in any version of the game so it's not like it's changing your expectations of what the game is going to look like so I, I think that's an important thing to note too but yeah i like it i think it's it's a a simple straightforward change and, and it becomes a lot more cohesive across the the mojang properties yeah, I expected to see more changes bad opinions about this, to be honest, but people mm. seem fine with it. Like, I think a lot of people just kind of shrug and go, okay, cool. I mean, it still says Minecraft, so, you know, what are you going to do? And I, I think I agree. It's clean. It's cleaner, it's more modern, and the creeper face in the A is more consistent with the other iconography. The previous one was kind of squished, and it looked like the, the creeper was doing, like, an evil stare at you, whereas the one in the refreshed logo for java edition and presumably the one in bedrock edition as well is more just like fully squares um and and that looks a lot like yeah the way you see creeper faces elsewhere in other minecraft iconography on t-shirts and hats and that kind of thing so it makes sense it, it's just aligning the the visuals across the whole brand makes sense to me and i'm not gonna get on my high horse about change being bad when it comes to java edition if anything it shows their commitment to keeping java edition level with bedrock edition because so many people are always concerned about java edition falling off in favor of them pushing bedrock edition because the marketplace can generate them revenue and that kind of stuff i think that people don't need to worry about that stuff so much no and i think that you know we've seen a lot of effort too in our news cycles about um consistency between the games like the um what's the word i'm looking for when they're um 
parody. Parody, thank you. Yeah. Brain fart this morning. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the parody changes that they, they've been spending so much time on. I, I think that that's the more important stuff than the logo, right? Like if anything's going to get the um, my my fist pump in the air with a hoorah is like, yes, the parody changes. You know? mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's one of the reasons why I don't play bedrock is because of how different the experience I will say used to be. It's probably better now than it was. I'm still, I'm sure it's different, but, but it would probably be a much more seamless experience for me five or six years into Java Minecraft to go and play bedrock now than it would have been four or five years ago. So yeah. um, I think that's all a good thing. Did you get any clarity on what replaceable blocks for the enchantment table bookshelf connection is? Because I'm still fuzzy on that. So I did watch an Exumavoid video and he had to dive into code to find out what those blocks were. And I think that a, a clearer list should be made available, uh, whether that's a, a wiki page or... I mean, I guess just through experimentation in the game, you're going to find out. Um, I think there are still some things that do block, but they don't expect to block. Like a too tall flower is still a problem, but mm -hmm. regular size flowers are not. Uh, they're, they're, we might see some smoothing out on this. I hope that Mojang provides a list in the same way that they provided a list of the vibration dictation or, or detection um, levels, you know? Yeah. So you kind of know where block breaking and block placing and footsteps and dropping and all that kind of stuff lands. And I think that if they provided a list um, or at least an example of like, here are the four categories of things, you know, flowers, grass, that kind of stuff. Also, um, snow layers apparently uh, don't don't block it. Uh, and when you do that, if you place snow layers down, you can place snow layers all the way up to the top of the bookshelf. It still doesn't block it. And and so I think that having stuff like that in there would be helpful for anybody that wants to make some creative changes to their enchantment setup, because I don't particularly like the enchantment setup. I find that the bookshelves have to be too close. I'm always trying to hide the bookshelves or hide the, the enchantment table or both. Uh, the only thing that I found that's been doable has been like putting the whole thing in a ceiling and then you just kind of click on the bottom of the enchantment table, mm -hmm. but then you get to look up and it's kind of awkward. Um, but I'm I'm curious as to what other things they could do because something that I thought that was really inventive uh, was that you can now place water around an enchantment table uh, and thus everybody was thinking, well, we could waterlog the entire setup. But in the Exumavoid video that I watched, you still can't waterlog an enchantment table. So we end up with this weird little air bubble in the middle. <laughs> right, yeah. Because you could have a really cool like, you know, Aquaman kind of under the sea enchantment setup if you wanted one in an underwater base with like, you know, a... Um, you know, so underwater breathing and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but you, you'd end up with this weird kind of strange thing in the middle. So if they could waterlog a, an enchantment table, that would complete that thought. But it just doesn't feel quite finished yet. It feels like the first stage of the implement, implementation of this feature. So hopefully we'll see some iteration over the next snapshot cycle. Yeah, I kind of hope so too. I think enchantment is something that it'd be nice for them to revisit, if not just from an aesthetics perspective, then from a mechanics perspective as well. If if nothing else, though, I'm happy for this change just because I have definitely fallen into the trap of thinking, I'll make an enchantment area, I'll put some carpet around the enchantment table, or I'll put some torches for lighting around yeah. the enchantment table. And yep, that's immediately like a demerit for how many levels you can put into enchanting from that point. So you've always got to light underneath the enchantment table, or you did for a while until i think the solid face on the bottom of those now blocks light again and there's there's all kinds of uh bits and pieces to be aware of things that can trip you up so hopefully they're uh 
yeah, revisiting those things, kind of like they revisited light levels in general, kind of going, why does this exist? And how can we make that more right. intuitive to players, more accessible to players, that kind of thing? I think um, an interesting path would be to, if it lets light through in the game, then it should let the floating magic runes through in the game. So glass, water, carpet, you know, like that kind of stuff. I the think corner would, of would, a stair block. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. You know, like stuff like that could be, could could open up all kinds of different ideas. I also think that maybe the range could be increased. Like, sure, keep the 15, like the math and all that kind of stuff makes sense. Like you just keep the 15 bookshelves, but it would be nice if I could have them two blocks or three blocks away. Or if you did something like power bookshelf or we have new bookshelves coming we've got chiseled bookshelves chiseled coming. yeah 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 and like what what do they do do that do that mean maybe you can only have six you know maybe you don't need 15 you know like i don't know there, there could be some interesting ways to power your enchantment table with the changes that are coming so we'll see Yes, we will see. Uh, moving on, though, let's take a look at Chunk Mail for this week. If you'd like to email the show and potentially pose us a question that we can discuss, the email address is spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. This one comes in from iche with the subject of more on pitcher plants. Hey, Joel and Johnny. I was recently listening to the latest episode of the podcast and loved your conversation on the pitcher plant. In discussing which creatures they could eat, one idea came to mind. Phantoms. Maybe having the carnivorous plants could finally make my nights serene again. That being said, does this idea eliminate the need for phantoms at all? Are there more problems in Minecraft that simply don't need fixing to keep the game enjoyable? I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Iche stayed up for a month straight without the need to angrily sleep. So I've been building a lot at night because I've been lighting up streets and trying to figure out where I need the dark spots and I need things to be almost spawn proof, but I want them to be visually medieval and not like lit up like a Christmas tree. And I've yet to see a phantom. I don't remember the last time I saw a phantom because as a <laughs> builder, whenever it gets dark, when I'm working on something that I need to see, I just sleep immediately. Um, now I also have um, the advantage of having a little clock, uh, which is part of my map mod that I have. And it shows me, and at every day at 1832, I sleep because that's the earliest time I can. And it just means that I can just more daylight for my for my time. Um, I am usually dealing with problems like zombies and skeletons coming out of the woods. <laughs> when I was working on all those custom paths earlier through the woods, the woods are not lit up, which means that I've really got to have my head on a swivel uh, after I sleep when I go back out because like there could be creepers in the woods, there could be skeletons lurking under trees that are no longer taking damage from the sun, that kind of thing. Um, so I haven't had any problems with with phantoms, but um, I do like the concept. I, I don't know if actually eating phantoms uh, is the right way because the phantoms are huge compared to a pitcher plant. Um, but in the same way that a cat will deter a creeper, there are enough people that don't like phantoms that would probably be very happy to have the pitcher plant act like an anti-phantom beacon. You know, like it just, the phantoms just detect, smell, see the pitcher plant and go like, nope, not going that way. Which means that if you had one near your house, they would just avoid you or swoop down and then swoop away without actually hitting you. I don't know about eating them, um, but I think there could be, you know, some fun things going in there. It it does sort of line up with the way that carnivorous plants in real life eat flying insects. Uh, and so I think that there's a slight parallel there and it keeps Mojang from like, having the pitcher plants attack bees because like in real life we want to preserve bees bees are you know dealing with problems all over the planet and i think that it kind of airs on the safe side to have an imaginary animal in minecraft 
um, be the thing that the pitcher plant is is tied to if if that's a road that they went down. Um, instead of maybe like insta kill or or even deter, you could also make it be a little bit more interesting by maybe hypnotizing the phantom. Maybe that they look at it and they kind of get zoned in. Like um, remember the bug from Bugs Life that looks at the bug zapper and he gets, he gets all hypnotized <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then yeah. dies. Um, well, instead of going all the way and being zapped, like maybe the phantom just like floats and stares at the thing, leaving it open for the player to to kill it if it wants. If you want to get the um, the phantom membrane, if you need those for anything, um, like slow falling potions, that kind of thing. Um, so there's a couple of options there that could be a little bit more creative than just like killing phantoms. But I find that there's this weird like people just really don't like the phantoms, and the solution is so easy to sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People people don't like to have their nights interrupted, but they're interrupted by everything else hostile that spawns. I think it's it's often the case that people will meticulously light up their bases so they don't need to deal with the rest of the mob spawns. They'll just like torch grid a base and then phantoms will still spawn because I think they would spawn if the light level was lower where they spawn, but they spawn in the air. So it's kind of difficult for people to avoid that sometimes. But yeah, I I, I kind of agree. I find phantoms are rarely a problem at my base uh, because that's where my bed is. So I'm always sleeping there kind of frequently. Instead, I find them a problem when I am far from home. I'm unwilling or unable to sleep uh, or maybe on multiplayer servers with single player sleeping game rules where like one person has been sleeping more frequently and then the one night that they don't sleep suddenly I've got a ton of phantoms because I haven't had the opportunity to get my head down. That said, I don't think I would carry pitcher plants around with me to ward them off wherever I was likely to see them, you know? Like, it seems like almost carrying a lucky rabbit's foot. It seems, like, unnecessary when you can just also duck your head under a block for nighttime or, you know, bring a bed with you. So uh, I think it seems more likely that the idea of them trapping phantoms would be better than the idea of them just straight up deterring phantoms like having a cat with you would um i also like the idea of them trapping phantoms easily because there's that achievement for killing two phantoms at once with a piercing crossbow and i always have a harder time with that than i feel like i should <laughs> you know even if i'm trying to like trap them in a glass box and i'm shooting them through each other they're always just slightly like n misaligned or or whatever and so i kind of like the idea of having something to hold them in place while i can aim my crossbow down the sights um yeah I, I think the other the other factor of this email was are there problems in minecraft that we want fixing in theory but practically speaking they don't need to be fixed because they are enjoyable game mechanics and i feel like it's time to fess up a little bit much as i like to complain about him the wandering trader is fine <laughs> i don't think it needs too much stuff added to it or fixed about it i've also never been on the vertical slabs bandwagon that a lot of people seem to be and the, there's so many things like this that we all think well for a quality of life change it'd be great if this or that happened but so frequently we're denying ourselves the opportunity to either in the case of the wandering trader have a good moan about something which as a british person i know is a very valuable thing to have um <laughs> but but also yeah like there, there are some things which are genuinely game mechanics that are useful in a variety of situations it's just we're not often in the situation in which it becomes useful wandering trader is my best friend in skyblock worlds where he can bring me more tree saplings and stuff but there's there's other reasons to like the wandering trader as well I think it depends on your level of game too. Like as an in-game player, even with added functionality through data packs with the Wandering Trader, like I get to buy mini blocks, which are very fun decorative things from the Wandering Trader and different every time. And he offers like a selection of like 12 or 16 or something. And and so it's worth checking out for, for fun reasons. 
For me, it's the fact that he spawns near me and is in my face constantly while I'm trying to <laughs> yeah, build. Yeah, just always pathfinding in front of you, yeah. Like, he just, he gets murdered. Like, he just, he drowns, he disappears, I go on a break, and all of a sudden there's no more wandering trader. And suddenly uh, there's and, two llamas yeah. dangling off a roof somewhere, <laughs> and you're like, hang on a minute. <laughs> and because I've got the mob heads on, like, I've got a chest full of, like, wandering trainer heads and llama heads, and those are just the ones I happen to keep. Like, most of them I just toss and let them despawn. So, mm-hmm. um, so I can see that. But, like, if I was playing a brand new world and I saw a wandering trader, I would absolutely be like, oh, I wonder what I can get from him. Like, it's going to be quite useful. Like, maybe you haven't found a desert yet. You know, maybe you, and he's selling cactus or something. You know, like, there's going to be some useful stuff there. Uh, Drip Leaf was the bane of our existence on the server until it became easier to get. <laughs> yeah, and 117 was like, everybody yeah. was hoarding Drip Leaf if they got it from mm-hmm. the trader. And yeah, yeah. There, there are a lot of people walking around with a few extra leads. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's other problems in Minecraft that I think don't need fixing. And we saw a few of those sort of lampooned by the vote update. You know, there, there were so right. many yes. like funny player suggestions in there that you're like, yeah, this is a monkey's paw situation where you think you want this, but actually you don't. And so... Yeah, much as I, I like to spend a little bit of time thinking, do Mojang really know what they're doing? A lot of the time they know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, the only thing that comes to mind, it's not really a gameplay feature. It's more of a a movement bug. I really don't like the the bouncing that you get when you've got your elytra on in water and you end up yeah, kind of like yeah. floating on the surface and bouncing around. And I find it I find it very, very taxing. I get I can feel myself getting frustrated with it. I mean, the solution is simple. Take off your elytra when you're in water. But mm-hmm. when you're zipping around a big build and you can't, it's almost as annoying to have to constantly like remember to log on to your <laughs> to your inventory and put your elytra back on before you jump off the building because you always wear it and you've been taking it off this stream because you've been working in a river or something and so that i find tricky i wonder if from 119.4 i think it's possible to hot swap your armor from your hotbar like it is in bedrock edition so you could in theory have a chest plate on your hotbar to swap your elytra out quickly and then swap it back in so I, I wonder if there are going to be many people who will adopt that as a play style and if they're flying around and want more maneuverability or want to be able to disable their elytra just temporarily if uh, that's going to be viable. I'm expecting that to be slightly more viable once armor trim and stuff comes in as well because people are going to pay more attention to what designs are on their chest plates and want to wear those a little bit more frequently. Before we move on, I'll mention that uh, Zacris in our chat reminded me that uh, phantoms are already scared of cats. So yes. that yeah, exists in the game. Um, I, I, the only thing I would argue there is that I think it's good to have two different ways to do something in Minecraft and a pitcher plant would be a silent way to deter phantoms. If you didn't want the constant meowing around your house, then maybe a pitcher plant would be a good idea there. Yes, slightly quieter than a cat. <laughs> Our next email comes in from Spectre Vamp. More ambience. Hello, Johnny and Joel. In recent episodes, you've discussed adding ambience with soundscapes, usually sparked by listener emails and the actions of the hermits. Back in 117, when spore blossoms were introduced, you discussed those, but I thought of something recently that I'm surprised hasn't been discussed on the show before. What if you could dye spore blossoms to change the cer- center circle of the spore blossom with the within the petals and also change the particle color? This would have no impact on the spore blossom itself, but could add a nice level of ambience. For example, an alien build. How cool would it be to have blue and purple particles in an alien landscape? Maybe in a man-made mountain build, you could simulate snow with snow layers actually accumulating uh, on the builds and a white spore blossom or a pink one for cherry blossoms 
which would be particularly nice for a Japanese themes build, which is something I like to make. I would love to hear your thoughts. Spectre Vamp went to sleep under a cherry tree and was suffocated by the blossoms. Uh, quick note, this email was sent in before the reveal of cherry trees and cherry blossoms in Trails and Tales, but I thought it was worth bringing up because of the self-expression and focus of Trails and Tales. Uh, I thought it was an interesting idea. Uh, I'm curious about your thoughts, Johnny, but for me, I didn't think that the direct solution of dyeing the blossoms was the most creative. I was thinking maybe if you change the mechanic of how the spore blossom grows, because it doesn't really grow. You just kind of, you find it, you collect it, and you only have as many as you have. Um, maybe growing them on different materials to encourage exploration. So once you find a spore blossom, instead of getting the blossom, you'd have to get something like a seed or a pod or something. And then you could grow it on the underside of different blocks to get different color spore blossoms. And then that would, of course, then give you the different particle effects. That unfortunately gives you 16 potential new flowers to find a place for in your inventory. Um, but I do like the idea of controlling the particle effects. And if not by the spore blossom and a dying or growth mechanic from the player, I could see additional ancient seeds coming from the sniffer in the future. And this is just speculation where they, they affect the environment because if you allow players to, you know, um, dye the spore blossom, there's all these colors that like who wants brown particles? You know, like there's all these colors that may not be the best. Um, but at the same time, I really like that ash look that you get in the basalt delta and you can't really recreate that in the overworld. So it would be cool if there were some different plants that would have that kind of effect. And maybe it's particles. Maybe it's a fog plant. Maybe it's a sound plant. I mean, we have skulk sensors, but like maybe it was something that would emit sound um, and, and create kind of like an ambient, you know, mood in an area, um, which I think they've done in some custom ways on Hermitcraft was I think it's either music discs or something that they've done that. But I feel like there is some opportunity for, if not the spore blossom itself, something similar to be found by the sniffer, which could make that plant more special unfortunately so far the two plants that the sniffer can find don't have any mechanics they're just decorative mm -hmm. yeah and and they were sort of advertised as being decorative so i think it's uh well it's possible that that stuff could come up in future i don't know for certain if we can count on it um yeah. i'm i'm in two minds about this because like like you i think the spore blossoms being dyed different colors it, it's a direct solution but it doesn't feel like it's the the best way of doing things especially now we have cherry blossoms and those will produce falling cherry petals as like particles so while i like the idea of expanding what's possible with spore blossoms because right now they are just a plant that produces an ambient particle effect and that's it they don't really have any other uses they don't have a a broad range of things you can do with them on the other hand i much prefer the idea of attaching particle effects like that to new features um, because then that gives us a much more expanded look at what that stuff can do and it's kind of like the wood palette you could give us paint that would allow us to color any like wood plank right. any color we wanted to but then that kind of limits the amount that they can add new trees in future and get us excited about a whole new wood color arriving with one of those so uh, yeah I, i'm i'm kind of on the fence but i definitely lean more towards 
having a variety of particle producing options in future than just a reskin of the spore blossom or a you know a, a dying effect happening with the spore blossom i would still love those to have more functionality in future maybe you know, I don't know a brewing recipe that increases particles somehow or something there's, there's so many different ways that you could play that but yeah I, I think it's going to be an interesting thing to see how they bring those in they don't all have to be organic either we're thinking of them as particles like spores hanging in the air but there could be magical means to produce particles there could be sparkles like the kind of thing that you see appearing on an end rod but have those emitted by something and those could be the white particles or the blue ones and you can do a lot with that i think so there's more opportunity for creativity if you expand it to new mechanics and new things yeah i think the technology and the i guess ambience of particles was i think the first time we really saw that was in the nether update right yeah when you started getting the like you'd have blocks like mycelium that would sort of emit low particles to themselves but it was the first time it really felt like it was in the air around you was probably right. the um the warped and crimson biomes in the nether right and that's and that's what i liked i, I like those kind of broad changes those environmental changes so um i i lean your way i think that instead of spore blossom changes i think the expansion of other things in minecraft using these features that are elsewhere in the game because they feel familiar right like you'll kind of understand like what they are uh and not be like oh crap is this going to hurt me like you'll kind of know oh this is cool like i how could i use this creatively and i think mm -hmm. that that's that's a, an important way to look at it i'm really looking forward to messing around with cherry blossoms in game and seeing what i can do with them whether they can you can hide them or like have the particles still visible even if you have a trap door in front of it like all that kind of stuff could be really cool if you wanted to have like pink particles in a hallway i don't know like just, it could be fun Definitely. Um, speaking of things we're looking forward to messing around with, let's talk about Minecraft Legends. Uh, I, at this point, have had a chance to publish a video about my experiences at a Minecraft Legends capture event up in London back in March. Uh, myself and a bunch of other creators were invited to do an in-person recording. We captured the first 45 minutes of the campaign mode, uh, which was a short controls tutorial and then single player action into the overworld and doing the first missions, which for the record still have a tutorial feel to them. You're still kind of being taught the game as you go, but there was a lot more of an idea of what you're going to get from that kind of gameplay. And then we spent another hour uh, with 4v4 PvP uh, plus pvpve because the piglins are still involved in uh you know player versus player combat but we did a 4v4 teams match uh i have a video of that on my youtube channel where minecraft legends content will be coming out as soon as i can make it available and it's uh it's it's fun i'm i'm really excited to have gotten a uh a handle on this i will start by asking you a question though joel what is your experience with strategy games in general are there any highlights from playing strategy games on pc or elsewhere that you've uh, really enjoyed some of my first games on pc were strategy games uh dune uh battle for arrakis or something it was a, we're talking late 90s uh early 90s maybe and and that was a, a kind of like a precursor to the kind of games like starcraft and warcraft that people mm -hmm. would be more familiar with and uh i really really like that and sunk hours into it and also spent quite a lot of time playing the first and the second starcraft uh starcraft the second was one of my first multiplayer game experiences we did not have uh internet in my dorm which is going to be hard for people to believe um, but we had 
a local network in the dorm. So I had a big co-ed dorm, but 150 people. And me and some of the guys would get together and play basically like land party. A um, couple people in each room, you'd be able to shout at least from one room to the other. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. uh, and so we would end up doing like 4v4 or I can't remember what it, whether we can get eight, v, you know, eight people total. Uh, in a skirmish match in, in StarCraft. And that was a lot of fun. So I like kind of like that experience is what I bring to it. So I've not played a lot of games where it's been more like hero focused. And so like action strategy over RTS. Um, I would say that the closest to that would be not playing all of the Warcraft games like Warcraft 3 and stuff, but like playing a little bit of them at some point. And just realizing, okay, this is a mission where I have like a character. The StarCraft II campaign was like that. There was a couple of campaign missions where you didn't have a base and you weren't building a base and trying to win. It was you, the hero, as Raynor or some other main character. Mm-hmm. And you had a squad. And you basically had to get to the end of the mission with the squad surviving, retrieve the artifact or destroy the enemy missile structures or whatever it is that you needed to do. And they would just kind of write it into a way that, you know, you you have to do this before we can enter and land safely and build a base. So that would kind of be this thing. I never liked those missions. <laughs> <laughs> like I, the infiltration yeah. missions weren't your jam? Yeah, yeah. no, I'm not, a, I'm not a roguelike guy. I, I don't like the... I like having a safe space to back into and plan my strategy. I was always a slow methodical player at these games i never did well in multiplayer when i was rushed it was not my favorite mechanic and ultimately that's why i stopped playing multiplayer in starcraft 2 is because so much of it became like zerg rushes and early game tactics and um i much prefer to see like let's get our both of our bases at least into the mid-tier of technology and then see whose strategy works out better i think that's more interesting than just like rushing in with a thousand marines and winning you know um it was never my my favorite mechanic and i was forced to learn some of them because you had to kind of do that in order to ladder up in certain ranks um i never got much above silver which was just the second ranking level mm-hmm. um but it, they're fun like i really like those kind of games I, I, I obviously i love minecraft and i like the look of minecraft legends i think it's going to be faster paced than something like starcraft 2 um, but I'm curious as to how it's going to pan out because I remember very finite control with like, I can say to my groups of hotkeyed armies, like attack this, attack that, you know, do this specific thing rather than just go in and let the AI do its thing. So I'm curious to see how that's going to pan out with, with legends. Yeah. So legends is an odd one to place when you're used to rts's because most of those are played top down whereas this is a full 3d you're controlling a hero character you have units around you but you're kind of rallying them around you so it's a little bit closer to something like a moba plus an rts and maybe throw in a side helping of the nintendo series pikmin where you're kind of like you're not quite solving puzzles in the pikmin way where you've got to send this unit around this way and this unit around this way but when it comes to combat you're kind of throwing a horde of things at stuff on a basic level and you'll probably be excited to know that there is a finer level of control you can have over some of your units once you're more experienced with the game. It might not jump out at you immediately and it might take a bit of time for you to adjust to it, but for the seasoned strategy players, I think there is some aspect of the controls of this game that will keep them, you know, easy to learn and challenging to master, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So I'll start with the campaign because that's really what we dove into first. We played through, like I said, the first 45 minutes-ish of that. Some people got a little further in that time. Some of us were just still kind of dawdling a little bit. 
Um, and the tutorial aspects of this game, I will say, are really important. Some of the controls like movement, camera control, and the, you know, rallying troops around you and then attacking with them, all of that stuff feels fairly intuitive. Um, but stuff like resource gathering and building... Stuff like that is going to be trickier to work out on your own. We had a cheat sheet in front of us with the keyboard controls, and if you flipped it, it had the controller. I mostly played keyboard and mouse. I, I switched to controller at one point whilst I was in the tutorial thinking, is this going to feel any better? And then realized it had told me all of the buttons for keyboard up until that point in the tutorial, and I was going to get completely lost if I tried to switch control schemes. But um, I think Martin in Littlewood played on controller for the entire event, and he had no problem keeping up. So I think it's going to be possible to play this on PC, both with keyboard and mouse or controller, and obviously it's going to come out on consoles for PlayStation, for Xbox, Switch, everything like that. Uh, so the control scheme seems decent. Like, they've mapped the controls to things that are fairly reachable for a keyboard player. You can kind of keep one hand on the mouse, one hand on the keyboard. Um, and I do highly recommend paying attention to the tutorial. Read everything that's on screen. Take your time with it if you need to, because that'll definitely help you get experience. I say that because when they threw us into the PvP match later, we still really didn't know what we were doing. Like, a lot of us had got the hang of the basic controls, but suddenly we had access to all of the improvements that we could build, all of the structures, the stuff that you hadn't got to in the campaign by that point. So there's a lot to learn, but you'll learn it over the course of playing the campaign, and that will effectively teach you to play multiplayer with everything unlocked. And I feel like that's sort of the case with most strategy games. Like in StarCraft, you weren't getting, like, the big units like the Terran battleships or Protoss carriers until, like, mission 8 of 10 in the campaign, right? right. So yeah. you've got to invest a bit of time into it in order to get to the point where you're building the big stuff and you know how to use it. Um, so from what I can tell... The campaign takes place in a procedurally generated world. There are a fixed amount of biomes. I mean, if not amount, then there are a fixed set of biomes. And it's not the full breadth of the stuff you'll find in Minecraft's overworld normally. Like, there's you know, a tundra biome, a plains biome. There are savannas and badlands. There's, you know, a few other bits and pieces. There will not be things like deserts as such but the savannas and the badlands kind of take the role of those there are jungles there are swamps like there's quite a variety of of stuff and from what you've seen in the trailers you'll know that a lot of the landscapes look fairly different to what we used to in minecraft they've designed their own types of trees for it and that kind of thing and that really comes comes down to the way they want you to harvest resources. You can't just dig stone out of the ground, you have to find stone formations that are planted on the surface in order to gather the stone that you'll need for building with and for, you know, spawning in stone golems and that kind of thing. So a lot of it is going to be looking around for which biomes have which resources. And some of the precious resources are assigned to individual biomes. So you'll only ever find diamonds in a tundra environment, or you'll only ever find redstone in either swamps or jungles, from what I've seen. So you have to think strategically about what's close to you in terms of figuring out what units you're going to be able to produce and where you're going to be able to harvest certain resources for upgrades and things like that. It's huh. not just a case of sit at your base, mine stuff at your base because your command center is next to all of the crystals and the Vespine yeah. gas and mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. StarCraft, as you can probably tell, is the, the, the RTS I've played the most of, so I'm going to be comparing it to StarCraft a lot. But you do have to take part in that exploration 
and resource gathering stuff has to take place on a broader scale. So that's really where a lot of the open world Minecraft exploration stuff gets folded into the gameplay loop in a really satisfying way. And th and this to me is where the multi. I mean, I know we'll get the multiplayer, but this is where the multiplayer thing really comes into uh, into focus for me. Is because you know you could divide and conquer. Like you could have someone out getting like, okay, we've got there's a there's a biome we want over there, and there's a biome we want over there. We I, if we both go in different directions, then we can get that gear faster than if one of us is doing one thing and I'm out gathering by ourselves. And I guess after you get used to the I guess the tech tree in the game, then you could decide whether it's worth it to like go get stuff or like, well, no, all the material from that biome is stuff we can't use until tier two. So we'd be better to focus on these other two biomes and, and stuff like that. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me the way that the, cause I think in your videos that you showed that the allays do the gathering. Yeah, so they like do. You, you don't, you don't chop down the tree. You tell the LA to gather the tree and then you kind of walk away. And that's similar to the, um, I, I played Terran the most in, in Starcraft too. And so it's similar to the little SCV mining drone, basically that you send to gather stuff back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And in your multiplayer experience, are, can the LA's be stopped by either yourself or the other players? This was something I noticed later that I didn't really play around with much at the time, but yes, they can. They can both be attacked by piglins in the middle of what they're doing. So if like a piglin raiding party is coming through and they find your allays, they can attack your allays and that stops resource collection from that area if they manage to take the allay down and they don't really have a way to defend themselves. So if you're worried about other players or piglins interfering with that, you can stick around and defend your LA in that area. But you probably don't want to do that because you're exploring a lot. Mm -hmm. The other thing you can do is recall the LA. It basically comes out of a little box every time you plant one down somewhere. So you can return to that box, hold down, I think, the F key to like remove it. And then the LA just goes back into your store of LAs and you have a limited number that you can spread throughout the map. So if you realize, oh, I've got enough stone, I've got stone for days, I need to really go and get coal now, then you can go back to where your LA is harvesting stone and then redirect it to somewhere that has coal. So there's a whole bunch of different, like, micromanaging things that you need to do as you're exploring to, to make sure that the, uh, the LAs are doing what you want them to do. In terms of the PvP thing, you were talking about delegating certain tasks to different people. That's exactly what we ended up doing because it was fairly clear that one person could be home working on the base and upgrading and building defenses and that stuff, whilst the others could be out, you know, running interference, kind of trying to rush the other player, which turned out to be a less viable strategy. But, you know, we were pretty evenly matched in terms of inexperience with this game. So who knows? Um, other people went resource gathering. Other people went to bother the piglins. And it turns out attacking the piglins throughout the match is really important because that's the only way you get prismarine for building improvements with and that's a really important thing to move up the tech tree so you're not just working with basic units the entire time and you need to have prismarine and you need to build improvements before you can start harvesting any of the precious resources so before you can get coal or diamonds or iron and they aren't necessarily like a progression you can get diamonds before you get anything else if you want to but you have to build an upgrade for your base in order to do that 
and those are built around these things called improvements hubs, which have a fairly tight radius in which you need to build all of the other improvements. So they can potentially be a target for other players coming in, destroy that improvement hub, it disables everything around it. Right. And then you can start destroying those systematically if you spend that long in your opponent's base. The, there's a yeah, there's a whole variety of ways that this can lend itself to strategic advantage. But at the time, it meant we were running around frantically trying to figure out where you could place certain structures and where you couldn't. And that's something that, with no experience of how that mechanic worked, it didn't occur to me until much later in the game that we were supposed to leave space around those structures so that you could build improvements around them. So that reminds me of things like the Protoss strategy in StarCraft, both one and two, I think, is that you had to use um, pylons. Pylons, yeah, things. they are yeah, 100% so, like pylons. Yeah, so pylons would be a target because if you destroy the pylon, then every building around it is no longer powered, uh, provided that they don't have any redundancies with other pylons nearby. And I remember with Terrans, it would be like your supply depots, like that's your army size. And if people take out your supply depots, then you can't have as big an army and you can no longer build more troops until you get your supply depots back up to match your existing army that's on the battlefield. And and it sounds like the improvement hub is similar to like power, like a power mechanic mm -hmm. uh, in terms of powering your base. Um, and then likewise, if you've got improvement structures, like if you've got an improvement structure that allows you to build new units or to do new base features if an enemy faction or the piglins come in and destroy that particular improvement structure i'd imagine you that you then you have to rebuild it like you then lose um access to whatever thing that you've unlocked right yeah yeah that's how it works yeah so you can you can take those down very strategically and you know if, if it's going to get you the upper hand for now then it may be better to rush in and take that out and not even touch the opponent's central like well which is the 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 kind of home base the command center or whatever that you lose the match if you lose that um so yeah we, we kind of we tried a variety of strategies they had mentioned a few of the developers were there at the event and they had mentioned the previous session to ours had built a redstone launcher which is basically a catapult and they'd used that to destroy the enemy's base really quickly in their second match of the day that they ended up playing we only had time for one match because it took about an hour and the redstone launcher turned out to be a little tricky to operate for a start it's immovable it's a structure rather than being something like on wheels uh so yeah, like, then you needed to target it in the same way that you're, like, directing your troops, and that turned out to be a little bit more of an unfamiliar mechanic. Uh, so there's some fine motor control involved in things like that, but it can be really effective once it gets going. On the other hand, it's a gamble. And for us, it didn't pay off, because once we had it installed, the other team recognized what it was, because they'd also been told about it by the developers, and they came up and just knocked it over pretty quickly. Uh, and then we couldn't use it and we'd spent all of our resources on that and we had to switch strategies and try for something else. So there's, yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, experience with that stuff that could have lent itself to a, a better time in PvP. Eventually, what happened was the other team rushed our base with some units we hadn't even seen up until that point. There were some big lumbering kind of brick golem things and I turned around and suddenly they'd like knocked down our wall and were making straight for the center of the base. And it turns out that whilst they had been doing that and they just had this all-out assault going on our base, Grian had been recruiting creepers, had been spawning in creepers, and was just sending them into the opponent's base one at a time. <laughs> and uh, understanding that you can do that, 
he basically sent them straight through one wall and then the wall behind that and then the wall behind that to get to their central well and he knocked that down within seconds of the opponent's taking our base out so it came down to probably seconds between it it was such a a fun and intense way to end that match because i absolutely thought we were gonna lose and then it popped up on screen and it went congratulations you've won and we all went what <laughs> like how has that <laughs> happened uh turns out green bit of a strategic genius and i'm screwed if i ever get matched up against him in pvp but we'll see how that goes um I've had a bit of a chance to look around some other aspects of the game as well. I've looking through my footage and seeing what did I miss? Like, what did I not really notice at the time? Because I was too eager to get straight into the campaign. So the main menu has four options on it. It has campaign versus Lost Legends and I and Marketplace. So campaign and versus are PvE, the sort of main storyline mode of the game, and PvP, VE uh respectively so you're either playing co-op uh with a friend in campaign mode or you're playing single player there and in versus obviously you're matching against other opponents but you also have the piglins to worry about i presume the marketplace is going to be where you'll buy cosmetic stuff for the game there are 10 player skins something like that available by default i think you can probably buy more skins for your player and a few other bits and pieces through the marketplace just cosmetic stuff i would expect for now uh, but i have no idea what lost legends and i is <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of curious to click on that button once i've uh, got the opportunity to do that because i i really want to know what that is it didn't hint at it anywhere else in the game as far as i can tell um and I presume it is a, a final option for the game. The main menu in my YouTube video you can see has some developer options on there. There's like a debug campaign option. And I think the flat world option on there was something that which isn't going to be in the final release. It's just a, a developer tool. And we are running on dev copies of the game for this event. I wonder in the marketplace if they'll position it in the same way that the Minecraft marketplace is where while the world is procedurally generated i wonder if there could be some maps that um players could make because there was a map making tool with games like starcraft uh, mm -hmm. that you could then download and, and do different things which led to like that's how dota started was yeah it was a it was a world of warcraft map i think or a custom yeah map? yeah or not uh, world, world of War not, uh, warcraft, warcraft 3 warcraft, warcraft 3, 3. Yeah, I get my Warcraft mixed up. Um, yeah, it's it's um, th that kind of stuff can be very interesting in the hands of the right, you know, creative player. In the same way that you know, data packs and mods and stuff are are very creative and fun in the hands of of developers for Java Edition. Um, with the Legends and I, I, this is just pure speculation from the the name of it. It reminds me of those missions in Warcraft Three where you had like a hero like Arthas or. Um, thrall or somebody with you to do to do something and i wonder if they have maybe a set of heroes made up in this minecraft history where you as a single player uh, can go and play a match a pve match with a hero unit that either you control or if left to their own devices, they were they will do their thing. And if you don't like the combat part of Minecraft Legends and you are much more of a supportive player, then you could have maybe the hero that's the super aggressive one, the one that likes to go out and battle. Or vice versa, maybe you're paired up with the hero that is the heroic architect. Like they're the one that builds the best bases. And so there you can leave them to do all the support and build up and protect your base and you know upgrade your your units while you're out um bashing piglin faces together and 
it could be an interesting extension of, of whatever the tutorial tends to be because then you could say, okay, well, look, you've done the tutorial, you know the basics of the game, but here's the different styles in which you can play the game. Just because you're not good at everything doesn't mean you can't enjoy Minecraft Legends. Maybe you could, you know, pair up with a friend and find somebody that really enjoys the more outgoing, aggressive style of play while you prefer the gathering and the, and the support section. It's the same way that um, people fall into their roles in MMOs. You know, people like healing, people like tanking, people like DPS. And I, and I think that it's a personality thing. It's a gameplay style thing. It's, it's a, how engaging is the content. And I could see it be an interesting way to, to do that, especially if it opens up for, you know, parents and kids to play together where parents might not be quite so quick with mouse or, or controller. Um, they could be maybe doing more of the easier lower key gathering base building stuff whereas the stuff that requires more of a, a quick reaction from the younger players is which is a stereotype i know um could be more of the outgoing exploration you know attacking and um strategy kind of stuff but like it, it's just speculation but it sounds like it could be a little bit of lore mixed in with just a different gameplay type yeah it could be i mean i i've no idea but maybe that's where the infiltration missions go you know <laughs> maybe there's like mm -hmm. a, a a couple of things like that we'll we'll have to see um really curious to see what that is though um and there's there's a few other aspects of the game that i didn't get to play around with too much but other players did on the day like if you explore the map in certain biomes you can run into different mounts you'll start with a horse by default but you can find a tiger that you can switch to that rides slightly differently um there's also a beetle and a bird that looks kind of like a cross between an ostrich and a toucan um and the uh the bird can glide a little bit the beetle can climb walls the way spiders do in minecraft there's a few different options for traversal which don't really change the battle side of things because your hero character still only has 10 hearts of health and some of the bigger units can deal a lot of damage to you. Like you can, you can be fairly weak in a situation where you're meant to be in the center of the action. So, I'm I'm curious if there's going to be anything that gives you like a defensive buff later or anything like that. But for now, it just seems like there's these these four different animals that you can potentially ride, which are horse, tiger, beetle, and bird. I'm not sure of their exact names, but that's what they are for now. Um, and what I was talking about earlier with giving orders to your troops being something that has some fine control um you can actually select either specific units specific types of units or all units to perform specific actions like it's either you focus on an individual target or you just charge and they run in and they start attacking the first thing that they encounter and it seems like that's going to give you a bit more control over it you can even if you just tap the mouse button instead of holding it down you can send in one unit at a time so you can send like a couple of archers to deal with a guy on your left and a couple of other archers to deal with a guy on your right and then send the mm. creepers straight through the middle to attack the walls and if you're at the point where you can comfortably do that in the course of gameplay which we weren't we were like flailing mice all over the place but if you can get to the point where you have that level of control over micromanaging units then you've cracked this game i think that's that's really where the skill level can rise up through people who are just going to be playing this casually so i am curious about whether there's going to be any kind of established pvp scene if there's going to be any kind of ranked like ladder competition or anything like that but there is room for all of that and if nothing else it promises to be a fairly pvp centric game once people have gotten used to the campaign stuff 
I think it's going to be really fun to have like co-op PVP, you know, like you, mm. you and I versus two other players, for example, yeah. you know, like I think that that could be a, a lot of fun and brings an, a different kind of level where each person doesn't have to learn a faction, you know, like in Starcraft, there's three different factions and you could potentially team up with a different one or you could team up with the same and kind of like double down. Mm-hmm. But in this, it's like, you're, you're both the same, like you're both overworld people. And really what you're building, it sounds like is depending on what biomes you're close to early on, what tech tree path you decide to take. Um, I'm curious with the, the, the battle and the interactions with the characters, like, are there, were there, were there anything, things that were confusing or drastically different in Minecraft Legends in, in your gameplay experience that were hard to wrap your head around when compared to other RTS or other strategy games that you've experienced in the past? I think it's really just the terminology this game has because it's not relying on your previous RTS experience. And this right. was something I highlighted in my video. There's there's a couple of concepts that they try and get through to you in the tutorial that, like I said, if you're not paying attention to the tutorial, they'll say stuff later that you go, well, what does that mean? So basically, when your character enters the world of Minecraft Legends, they are given a loot. And one of the characters says, the tutorial characters, says, give giving you this loot allows you to play all these different melodies that will be what allows you to win the day and the allays are the ones who listen to the melodies and they'll do all of the gathering and stuff for you but from then on anything that you build is considered a melody so like when you open up the in-game journal and it shows you the different categories of stuff that you can build it refers to them all as construction melodies and improvement melodies and so trying to understand that whenever something popped up on the screen just like a little notification that said you have learned this melody that meant you've learned to do that now (laughs) and it does that for for resources as you go around the world as you collect new kind of like like crafting recipes for example you know every time one of those pops up it says you've learned melodies for lapis <laughs> and you go okay what do i do with those and it turns out that if you just open the journal it will tell you what lapis does in the game but it's a little bit confusing at first the other major one of these that i ran into was the concept of flames of creation which is effectively your mob cap or your unit maximum um you were talking about having to get like supplies for units in starcraft and making sure that you had enough um you know supply depots or in warcraft it was farms right you had farms everywhere whether you were playing as orcs or humans and those are effectively the equivalent of what the flames of creation thing is in minecraft legends it's a specific counter that once you've reached to start with 20 units you can't spawn in anymore until you make an upgrade and you add flames of creation to your available pool of mobs that you can spawn and so they, they, there was this one really confusing sentence where they're like, you know, lapis is what you will use to spur, spur on the flames of creation. Take this lapis and play a spawner melody. And I just went, what? <laughs> it just kind of it gets, <laughs> yeah. it gets a little bogged down in its own terminology. But again, it's trying to teach you concepts without using like either phrases that are used in other RTS games or that don't necessarily convey the right idea. And it's trying to teach you as though you'd never played an RTS game before. And so it can't just start calling them units or troops or whatever until you've got a little bit more familiar with the game and you're aware that these are interchangeable terms. 
So Flames of Creation is one of those things. There is an upgrade to Flames of Creation that I spent most of our multiplayer game going, I don't know what this does! Because I was so under so much pressure that I didn't realise that I could just read about it in the, the in-game journal. I don't want to be sat there reading when there's a, a battle going on around me, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, that, so was, it, that was part of the difficulty of it. It sounds like you really want to do the campaign before yes. you get into any kind of multiplayer situation. Cannot emphasize that enough. Do the tutorial, do the campaign... Like I said, with most RTS games, with strategy games, the campaign is teaching you how to play the game at its fullest extent. It's just doing that gradually. Um, and there might be ways that you can fast forward that if you've got some friends who know what they're doing. But realistically, you probably need to know what everything does before you try and compete. Or match yourself against friends who are equally inexperienced like we did on the day. Um Going back through the footage, there were a couple of other things I wanted to highlight. Uh, the game has some accessibility options, which is really good to know. Uh, there's text-to-speech in there. There are a few different options for text scale. There is a color blindness mode and a couple of things that allow you to invert what certain controller buttons do. This was me looking at the accessibility mode when I switched to the controller. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about what exists for, for keyboard controls as well. Having said that... It looks like there are control options that allow you to rebind keys, buttons for a controller, adjust sensitivity for analog sticks or the mouse, invert right the Y-axis, that kind of stuff. So a lot of the stuff that you would expect from a console title where it's got a few more things to make sure you can reach all the buttons and you know if you're playing with certain disadvantages, then you can try and even the playing field a little bit. You'll hopefully be able to you know, wrap your head around that kind of stuff once the game has taught you the default controls. So look in the menus if that's the kind of thing that's that's you're curious about. And I'll try and cover some of that stuff in my YouTube output here and there as well uh, as I dive into it more. But it's uh, so far my first impression of this game overall to sum things up here. It's really fun. I think a lot of it is going to depend on how into the PvP aspects you are. But the fact that the campaign is there and can be played cooperatively and is going to generate a different world each time you play it. I'm not sure if there are difficulty settings, if you can like ramp up difficulty at any point. But if you can, it feels like it's going to have a lot more replay value than you'd expect out of a title like this. I think the procedural generation of the maps and the combination of PvPVE is what's going to separate this from my previous experience with these kind of games. Yeah, I certainly hope so. I think I think it's something that people can get into whether they're an RTS fan or a Minecraft fan or both. And I expect both sides will kind of find things to like and dislike about it. But overall, I'm just really excited to play more. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, that's hopefully going to happen by the time we get to our next episode. So uh, if you folks are listening to this episode on the day of release, Minecraft Legends is only eight days away. And there's a chance that uh, we might be able to get our hands on it slightly early. So uh, look forward to that, and I might have more to say to you next episode. But for now, that's going to be it for this episode of The Spawn Chunks. You can find more information about the show and links to some of the stuff that we've talked about today at thespawnchunks.com. The music for the show is composed by me, and The Spawn Chunks is proud to be a listener-supported podcast. If you're getting some value out of the show, why not consider putting some value back in? You can visit patreon.com slash thespawnchunks to join our community, where pledging at any level will get you an invite to our patrons-only Discord chat, and you can participate in things like the live show recording. We record our show live in Discord with an audience of listeners every week. We also have our monthly Minecraft audio hangout coming up on the 22nd, and we have a quarterly hangout in the pipe for you to listen to if if you've got the patron RSS feed. 
We are currently at 323 patrons, which is up nine from last week, which I think is things just returning to balance after Patreon processing weekend. Uh, special thanks go out to our content engineer patrons, Hunter555, Jumbo Sale, and Yitz. Thank you for your support on this episode. Sharing the podcast with your friends is the easiest way to support the show. You can find us at The Spawn Chunks on Twitter and Instagram. Personal recommendations are by far the best way to share a podcast. Just to poke a friend in the arm from the safe distance and say, hey, you should listen to The Spawn Chunks. And you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and even YouTube. Be sure to leave a rating and a review on your favorite platform. You can email the show at spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. Keep those short and sweet. It'll get them right on the show or at least increase the possibility of them being read on the show. The RSS feed is linked at the spunchunks.com and the patron only RSS feed is on the Patreon page. That's where you can listen to the render distance, the extended version of the podcast. My name is Johnny, but online I go by Pixorifs. You can find most of what I do at youtube.com slash where right now I'm focusing on Empire's SMP, but there might be some Minecraft Legends content coming fairly soon. I also stream three days a week on Twitch where I do behind the scenes work for the aforementioned YouTube series. Still playing Elden Ring with my friends XP a couple of times a week as well and that's been going very very well. I'm the voice of the unofficial Hermitcraft recap on the weekends. You can find that through a quick YouTube search and aside from that I'm at Pixorifs on both Twitter and Instagram. Joel where can people find you online? Everything I'm doing online can be linked at joelduggan.com including the Citadel Cafe, my other podcast about sci-fi and fantasy entertainment. You can follow me at Joel Duggan on social media and Joel Duggan on Twitch, where I stream almost every day. Lego Fridays are back. I am building the Imperial Probe Droid. Uh, day two of that will be up this Friday. Uh, day one is on YouTube right now. Uh, Joel Duggan VODs, which I don't mention often enough on this podcast. But if you want to watch the entirety of West Hill, if you want to see all of the streams archived for that build, as well as my Lego builds, you can check out Joel Duggan VODs on YouTube. Thanks for visiting the Spawn Chunks. The world outside is infinite, and that's what legends are made of.